Welcome to the Law School Admissions Simplify podcast, where we talk about all things LSAT, law school admissions, and otherwise. I'm Ben, and I do LSAT prep and law school admissions full time. You can find me on Instagram, where I post about the admissions and the LSAT at LSA Simplified, or on my website, lsasimplified.com. If you need to get started with the LSAT, I would recommend my book, which you can find on Amazon. It's called LSA Simplified's LSAT Primer. I also host free LSAT sessions once a month. If you're hearing this, um, when this comes out, it will be on Wednesday. So I have a session, it's at 6 p.m. Eastern time. You can sign up by going to my website. There is a page for it, as well as if you go to my Instagram bio, there's gonna be a link where you can sign up. So yeah, cool, cool. And then I also offer paid stuff for folks that are you know, looking for extra help in their LSAT prep or admissions journey. Alrighty, so today we're gonna to talk about how to do logical reasoning, generally what we're paying attention to and how to break down the arguments. Um, it will be kind of broad because due to the nature of this podcast, I can't have actual LSAT questions on it. That's an LSAC rule. So we'll be talking about general strategy. It's important to note the general strategy, um, you know, it's not going to be sufficient. Just learning these strategies or how to approach them is not going to help you get to where you need to be on the LSAT. You're actually going to have to go implement them. Um, so yeah, listen to it. It should help. But then the way you'll know if it's actually working for you is if you go down, do a set of questions and see is it making sense to you? So we'll go through that. We'll also touch on um, how affirmative action is changing in law school admissions. Uh, then we will go through a statement that someone has submitted. It's a personal statement. And then finally, we will visit Reddit and go from there. I have a few ones pulled up that I thought looked interesting. So yeah, first off, well, let's start with logical reasoning. So with logical reasoning, it's gonna be those short little arguments where they ask you something about them. They can ask you a lot of things about these arguments whether or not the argument makes sense, what the conclusion of the argument is, how you might attack it, how you might defend it, um, what if true would prove the argument. So like what piece of evidence would make this argument solid, what the argument must agree with, arguments that are parallel in logic. So like there's so many different question types, um, but they all basically come down to the same idea, which is how close are you? Like how well did you understand it and how well did you attack it? So some LSAT prep advises reading the question first, so you know what you're looking for. And I think that's garbage because what happens is you're so busy looking for the conclusion that you miss what's right in front of you. I like to bring up this psychological experiment that's been done with the gorilla basketball video. It's called the selective attention test that you can look up on YouTube. If you haven't done it, you could pause this and go check that out. But for those of you that have seen it, basically it's an experiment where you ask the viewer of the video to count how many times people pass a basketball back and forth. And while you're counting that, in the course of a minute, they pass the ball 15, 16 times. I never did an accurate count. I always get the wrong number when I watch the video. But that's besides the point. The point is, is that in the middle of it, a gorilla walks across the screen. And people, because they are so focused on identifying whether, like, how many passes are made and they're counting, it's pretty astonishing the percentage of people that just straight up don't even notice that a gorilla walked across the screen. So I find logical reasoning to be very similar, where if you're looking for what's wrong with or if you're looking for a assumption or how to strengthen it or something like that, you'll often miss what's right in front of you, which is that this argument actually is just broken and there's a pretty obvious hole. So your job should be to always be what I call the uncle at Thanksgiving and point out why the argument is wrong. We all know that uncle or family member who at Thanksgiving points out why you're wrong on everything. And that's your job on the LSI is to point out, hey, here's why you're incorrect. This is totally bullshit. And I'm gonna tell you why. If you're good at arguing, this should be easy. I find that a lot of people uh, that want to go to law school, they think they're good at arguing. 
Um, this will be a good litmus test for, are you good at arguing or are you just stubborn? If you're bad at logical reasoning, you're probably not good at arguing because it will ask you to attack arguments, to defend arguments and kind of logical statements. And so you'll have a chance to do that. Um, the other thing is most of these arguments are broken. They'll have something wrong with them and some point to attack on. So you need to identify that point and attack it. If you do that, that is almost always the answer and it will be obvious. So we're similar to reading comp, we're reading actively. We're trying to find out what's wrong with it. And we're having an opinion on reading comp. We're just parroting back at the author, what they've told us, but on LR, our job is to point out why our author is full of it. So you're coming up with any objection to bring outside information, point out why they're full of it, all that good stuff, but just some reason why, whatever the goofball is saying, why they're wrong. An example argument, and this is on an LSAT argument, because I can't use them would be something like, um, the sky is blue. Therefore the sky is pretty. And your job is to grant their premises. So you're like, okay, the sky is blue. That is indeed true. However, what if blue is the ugliest color? What if I hate blue? And that's your objection is, well, okay, sure, it's blue, but is it actually pretty? And with that, then once you have your objection or whatever's wrong with the argument, occasionally there won't be something to object to because sometimes they just give you a set of facts. When that happens, you'll notice that as well because if you're trying to argue with the conclusion and there's no conclusion, you'll notice that. Then you get to the question. After you read the question, I like to attack it as if it were a free response question where you're writing your own answer without even looking at the multiple choice options they give you. When you do that, you have a much more narrow vision of what sort of answer you're willing to accept. If you are looking for answers before you really know what you're looking for, the LSAT's really good at writing answers that seem relevant, but are actually full of crap. Um, so predict it because when you know what you're looking for, it'll be much easier. And yeah, it's totally possible that um, your prediction won't end up being the answer, but often it is. In fact, most of the time, your prediction will just be the answer. So you really should pause before you dive into the answers. And the work is done up front. By the time you're in the answers, you need to have an idea of what you're looking for. There are a few exceptions, but for the most part, if you can't write out a free response answer, you did not understand it. And the other thing is getting it down to two answers is not good. People are always so proud that they're getting it down to two answers. And it's hard to tell them that like technically getting it down to two answers is only 30% better than randomly guessing from a statistical standpoint. Um, not to get too mathy, but every LSAT question that you do, if you're randomly guessing, you have a expectation of 0.2 LSAT points because you're going to get one fifth of them, right? So you're going to get 0.2 points per question you do randomly. If you get it down to two, you are now getting 0.5 of them, right, which is an increase of 0.3, which is atrocious. So getting it down to two answers is not that great. Um, you really want to be getting it down to one. Four of the answers are often really bad. So it's not like there's a second best answer. There really isn't. You're not being skeptical enough. And that probably means you're not reading the initial argument well enough in the first place. So get good at that. And then a lot of people also do a lot of question type work as their approach. Cause like I was talking about, there's like 12, 13 different question types on logical reasoning. But the tricky thing is that they're all coming back to arguments and how well you understand them. So knowing how to strengthen an argument specifically and what the else I want you to do, you don't have to know. And the question type approaches you can use, and I have like materials on them, but it really should be back in English. Your first um, instinct should be sit down, read it, and answer it in English. Yes, there's all this LSAT stuff that you can learn as like tricks, but honestly, those tricks are for people that are intuitively bad at this. Um, most people can do good at the LSAT without ever learning question type approaches. I'm blown away by how many um, tutors and courses focus overly so on question types, and I think it's because... They just don't want to explain that it's easy. The, the other thing is if you convince someone that they need an hour lesson on every single question type, you've just made yourself a buck because they have to pay $200 an hour times 15. You just made three grand off that person, which 
some tutors, that's legitimately their business model. I, I don't understand it. But the point is, is that, well, I do understand it. It's very lucrative, but I, I don't understand it from a teaching standpoint. It's a very inefficient way of doing it. So yeah, are there question type approaches? Like, sure, there are things you can, and tricks you can use, but it's largely nonsense. And then additionally, uh, formal logic is often taught by other ones where they teach you how to diagram statements such as all foxes are red, or if you go to the mall, you will spend money and put that in like logical terms. I trust that you're smart enough to understand them. They are not going to ask you to do theoretical physics on the LSAT or do anything complicated. These arguments are easy. The concepts are easy. If you can't understand that like some foxes are red conceptually, quit now. You're not going to be a lawyer. So you don't need formal logic. And if you do, this is not the field for you um, because these ideas are rather simple. Once again, I find this to be often something as in kind of a hope for you know, making LSAT more complicated than it is so that you have to spend more money. It's really not that complex. It's like, yeah, are some of these questions hard? Sure. There are minute things you have to learn how to do, or that maybe the initial person won't see, but with a little bit of honing you'll get, but it's not because you have to learn formal logic or how to do a certain type of question. All that is the test is in English. People sit down and regularly score on perfect on LR or reading comp the first time they ever do it without learning anything LSAT related. So if you're a good reader, if you're a careful reader, you will be good. And then ultimately, how do you improve on LR? Well, repetition. With all things LSAT, learning theory after hearing this podcast, I mean, it should give you a better idea of how to do the LSAT. But like the way you really improve is to sit down and do questions, look into those questions, see what you got wrong, figure out what you misunderstood and repeat. Rinse and repeat until you understand it. I mean, the amount of people I find, I just want to read books or listen to podcasts, stuff and not actually study. Well, it's fine as supplemental material, but this is not studying. If you're listening to this and counting this as studying, you're tricking yourself. This isn't actually studying. This is supplemental for whatever you're doing. You really have to sit down and do questions and that's where you improve. Okay, cool, cool. Well, that's my little LR elevator pitch. Obviously it's easier to do with actual questions. If you want to see that, come on Wednesday. We'll talk through a few questions, um, which will give you an idea to kind of see like how you do that. All right, our next point is our legit or bullshit. So far on episode four, we found that the advice about adding your GPA with easy classes actually was good advice. And the person giving out the advice was had tunnel vision because they worked at an elite law school and working at an elite law school leads you to have different thoughts than maybe the average law school applicant should hear because, you know, applying to Harvard is a very different game than applying to Oklahoma State University. So, so far we're on one. Uh, and today we're talking about affirmative action because since, what is it? Um, when was the case decided? Sometime this summer in 2023, but it's now December of 2023. And it's a weird year because this is the first year where law schools are not supposed to use affirmative actions in their admissions decisions, or they're not supposed to explicitly use it. I don't know. I didn't read the opinion, but I think it's, you're, you're not supposed to consider race as a factor. And for what it's worth, law schools have used race as a factor pretty substantially in the past. Uh, they benefit um, underrepresented groups. So groups that have a lower percentage of their population in the legal field and law school than they do in the population. So the typical ones were um, Hispanics and African-Americans and Law school never really, you're never really disadvantaged for being um, part of a, um, I guess, overrepresented group. It was more so just that you got a boom, like a bump if you were part of a unrepresented group. Like, so for example, I think in the undergrad case, if you were like South Asian, you had a pretty substantial hill to climb uh, to get into like Harvard. You don't see that in law school. There's not like, a, they don't really have like quotas where it's like, oh, we have enough Asian people. We're going to stop admitting them. It's rather that if you are, a black applicant or a Hispanic applicant, you would get a boost. Is that still going to be a thing? I don't know. I, I think they're not going to be able to get away with kind of like the um extreme stuff where like someone had substantially lower standards. 
like it used to be like if you had a 165 plus or so and you were um part of these groups you might stand a pretty good shot at harvard whereas to be like the more average applicant you would need to be higher in the rank well, i'm trying to think about um well i don't know like low 170s so it's not huge it's not like someone who's entirely unqualified is getting in with like a 155 but rather it was a slightly lower standard and if they're doing it that aggressively and it shows that all the like the average admitted LSAT of a black student is like 10 points lower than the average admitted LSAT across the board, Harvard might be in real trouble with the Supreme Court. But schools are going to react to this differently. There wasn't clear guidance. So some schools will probably still give a big URM boost. And, you know, they might get slapped by the courts for doing that. They also might not. It's hard to know until that happens. Some schools might also just disregard URM status entirely from now on and just say, hey, uh, we're evaluating everyone race blind. We don't care what race you are. Uh, we already want to take a colorblind approach to admissions. So it's hard to know. Uh, for anyone who's taking, who's making broad or sweeping statements about how affirmative action has changed and how they know this will affect law school, they're lying to you. No one knows because we don't have the data yet. This time next year, we'll have a really good idea about how much affirmative action has evolved and whether or not law schools are still really using it or whether they're not. Um, I mean, yeah, as a personal anecdote, a person I did LSAT with this summer just got into Yale. And she is of a traditional URM group, but I mean, she, she had really good numbers. So, but below Yale numbers, that being said, you know, white people get into Yale every year below numbers. So it's very possible that they have caught affirmative action. It's also possible they're still kind of using it. Um, but she was not like, like she, she was very qualified. She had really good essays. So it doesn't seem like, I don't know, maybe she got URM best. I have no idea. But as of now, it appears that URM is going to be diminished. I wouldn't say eliminated, but you're going to have to be a lot closer numbers-wise. You won't get the uh, leeway that you used to. But even then, I think the leeway often gets overblown on like Reddit and stuff because even if they admit someone because they want a diverse class, they still have to report them to the ABA, which goes into their rankings. So if they're admitting someone, it's still hurting their rankings if they're admitting someone below numbers. Um, so I think a lot of the like URM anger that some applicants had on Reddit, uh, I'm, I'm talking about people that were upset that URM affirmative action thing was a status was a thing because they felt it was unfair to them. Um, that was overblown. It was re really never that much of a boost because if law schools did so, they did it at their own peril. They would cost their ranking, which would cause them to get less applicants and cause them to get less money. And like we talk about here, it's all about the incentives. So I don't know that affirmative action was ever that huge. Like there were certainly anecdotal cases of someone getting in well below numbers, but then the question is um, how much of that can be attributed to them being kind of a random admit versus being a random URM. So uh, it's a lot of me talking for the very basic idea of, we have no idea what's happening with URM status. We'll know a lot more next year. And until then, all you can do is be the best applicant this, like that you can be. So it's really not something you control. So I would just do the best you can try to apply, um, with your best LSAT score and your best GPA and obviously your best statements and all that. But other than that, there's not a whole lot you can do. Okay, cool. Cool. But yeah, if anyone has any follow-ups or thoughts on that, if you have any data that you've seen, I'm always open to hearing that you can email me ban at lsasimplified.com. And I will throw that on the agenda. Um, so yeah, then we'll touch on to law school lingo. Today we're talking about LOCIs, which are all capital L-O-C-I. That stands for a letter of continued interest. Um, this is for applications. So like, let's say you're applying to law school and you get waitlisted. A LOCI is something you send to say, hey, I got waitlisted, but I'm really interested in attending this school. Just so you know, I really want to come here. Um, you don't want to overly spam them, but basically that's what it is. It's just, hey, I just want you to know that even though I haven't been admitted or I've been waitlisted. I really want to attend this school. And yeah, 
I would generally advise against low keys because once again, if you're getting in with a low key, you're probably getting it off the wait list and hence you're probably paying full price. And I'm a huge fan of not paying full price. So for people I would advise, I don't even really consider it as too much of a thing. That being said, this does kind of fall off at the Harvards, the Yales, the Stanfords. Like, yeah, sure, whatever. I, I mean, pay full price for those because the opportunities you get are still really good. Even then, I would still be uh, hesitant to pay a full price because, yeah, you'll have good job opportunities once you graduate, but then you're locked into legal practice and you might hate legal practice. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't pay full price for any school in the country, but I can at least understand the argument for Harvard, Yale, and Stanford because you are guaranteed the big salaries when you graduate, whereas that's not true elsewhere. Um, and yeah, let's do our personal statement and see what we... Actually, we'll do the personal statement after we do Reddit. So I have three questions from Reddit. The first is about the February 9th LSAT. And the person says, I'm taking the LSAT in February. Currently have a good grasp of LR and I'm scoring five out of five and four out of five consistently on drills and feel pretty confident with most LR question types. Should I spend the next month on reading comp or logic games? Any suggestions would help. And I'm like, well, whoever this is, you actually don't know how good you are at the LSAT. You say that you're scoring five out of five out of four out of five on drills, but logical reasoning can be really hard. Or it can be really easy. I can give someone five out of five of the easiest LR questions and you can give it to a fifth grader and they'll get the easy ones right. The issue is, does that translate to the whole section? So you need to do sections. You need to do practice tests. You don't know where you stand right now. Uh, and feeling confident with question types, like, okay, sure. But what I care about is when you do a 25 minute time section, what does that look like? Are you getting 10 right? Are you getting 20 right? You really need to know where your scores are at. Then as far as like getting better at games or reading comp, I mean, if you haven't perfected logic games and you're taking it in a month, that's where you can have the most quick games. That being said, you shouldn't have ever signed up for the test before you were ready. It's a very common thread that I find myself saying, but don't sign up for the LSAT until you like your practice test scores. Miracles don't exist in the real world. Um, so like, yeah, it's just, it's a bad idea and you shouldn't have done that. Um, my suggestion, unregister, apply for 2025, which is almost always my advice for people that are worried about timelines. Oh yeah, uh, this other question says, when is too late? Hi, I've recently decided to take the LSAT and get into law school. I'm currently signed up for January, but I haven't had much time to study and my diagnostic test put me out of 157. Oh yeah, so 157 is very high. This person is capable of a 170s easily. They then say, I'm wondering if I should, if applying for fall 2024 admission, am I better off changing my test date to April or February? Um, well, no, you're, you shouldn't apply for 2024. That's a really bad plan. Taking it this late in the cycle is just not a good idea. You, this is the type of person that could have gone to Yale if they took a year, but instead they might end up paying full price for Oklahoma State University. The difference in outcomes in your lifetime is astronomical. This person needs to take it next or take it sometime in the next year so they can reach their 170 some score and apply with that. Applying now would be a really bad idea. Most people that do this do apply now and they absolutely sink their futures. Don't do that. It's a really bad idea. Um, it's just atrocious. Okay. Cool, cool. Continuing on. And then finally, this person says addendum for depression. Hey guys, what are your thoughts on adding mental health related addenda? We've talked about this, but the basic idea is no. It will never be interpreted in your favor. And so it can either be interpreted as a neutral aspect or a negative aspect. And you just, there's no reason to introduce that because it can hurt you. They say my GPA suffered a bit due to depression, but I am since receiving treatment. Do you think it is worthy of an addendum? I don't want to seem like I'm making excuses. Let me know what you think. So yeah, um, I would, I mean, you, you could say, the way I would do this is just say, hey, I have an upward trajectory with my GPA. You don't even need to mention the reason. Just talk about how you improve your grades. Uh, I mean, you you probably could write an addendum where you mention and say, I, when I was like a freshman, I had untreated X. 
Um, I got medicated in the past three years. I've had no further issues and my GPA has been X. However, you don't even need the reason. You could just give them the numbers and they'll get to their own conclusion of, oh, so-and-so now does better in school. That's more representative of who they are now. And you don't even have to mention depression because depression adds no points in your favor. It only introduces possible reasons for them to push back on you as an applicant. And in general, I wouldn't do that just because you don't want to give them reasons to deny you because they might. And like, hopefully they don't, but you just never know. So that'd be my advice. Just don't mention it. Yes, write the addendum on your GPA because your GPA went up, but just don't talk about it. Okay. And then finally, we have a law school personal statement. Um, and yeah, this one has a decent amount. I will be talking, just going through it. And yeah, so it starts off by saying with a quote, which don't do, never have quotes from other people. This says challenges are what makes life interesting and overcoming them is what makes life meaningful. Joshua J. Marine. So like, yeah, sure. Nice quote. Um, quotes don't belong in your personal statements. Personal statements about you. It's not about other people. So I would just cut that. And then they, the person opens. For dating back to first grade and grammar school, I was a careless student who did not consider my academic goals, nor even try to comprehend the quality of what was taught in class. Um, okay, so I, I assume this person can talk about how they became a better student. The issue though is we're leading with bad facts. You don't want to be someone who was ever a bad student. I mean, it's okay if you were, but you don't want to tell them. It's not a point in your favor. And your personal statement is the space for points in your favor. So I would avoid that entirely. Uh, additionally, we don't care about when you were six. Elementary school is generally not a topic we want to breach in our personal statements. In fact, I wouldn't talk about anything before you were like 18 or 19. Um, anything that was before high school or in high school doesn't belong in a personal statement. You're trying to portray yourself as a professional person who will be a good lawyer. And when you give themselves, like the person now has an image of you as a six-year-old who doesn't care about school, which like, I'm not saying that that's a reason they should deny you, but it's certainly not a reason they should admit you. And your job is to give them reasons to admit you. And so far, at best, you've given them no reasons. At worst, you've given them reasons to deny you. So I would cut that. We continue. So my parents had to choose whether to enroll me in a school for kids needing special help or to repeat the first grade. Yeah, that's all fine. Um, but like, not it's not helping. This is not points in your favor. They chose the latter option since I considered this a second chance to exercise the discipline of relearning the past year and the hope of internalizing and applying myself toward education. So I'm like, okay, first off is seven-year-old, you really that introspective where you're like, mom, dad, I really want to stay in school so I can repeat it and learn from it. Maybe, like, I, I don't know, but it does introduce like, are seven-year-olds really that introspective? Generally, no. So it does introduce a skeptical reader. Additionally, once again, we just haven't gotten into good facts of like anything positive about why you should be a lawyer. So I would probably cut all that. Even after completing first grade, I knew the work was not done. Yeah, I, I would say so. For I mean, it's first grade, you're seven. Of course, the work the work hasn't even started. What are you talking about? Um, yeah. So, and I must be more diligent in school, which helped me develop vital skills that allowed me to realize I needed to move forward and never look back. From second to the eighth grade, I was enrolled in ELL. Is that like ESL, like second English, second language? And a special education program as I struggled to speak proper English and had difficulty focusing on my studies. Nevertheless, I started to gain the discipline of performing well after junior high school. Okay, good. I mean, it's nice that you're doing better, but let's not even talk about that. Let's not even talk about these things that could be interpreted negatively. Let's instead just find a different topic and focus on winning. I'll see if there's any of that deeper, but so far I would cut all of that. Generally, the overcoming adversity personal statement doesn't execute as well as people think. And I think this is an example of that. So far, after this paragraph, what do we know about this applicant? Well, I know that this applicant was, had to repeat first grade. I know they were in special ed and English second language. I also know that they did better in school, but that doesn't make them a good candidate. That's just like, you know, points towards. Like it's, yeah, it's better than doing poorly, but it's not, it's kind of the baseline and you don't want to be the baseline. You want to exceed in some way. 
All right, the person continues. In high school, I overcame all possibilities of being left behind and was no longer in special education nor ESL. Yeah, I mean, I would show, not tell. I also wouldn't talk about high school really at all. Um, but don't talk about that. Just say like my GPA was X or I didn't. When you say overcame all possibilities, it's really broad and it's very imprecise. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, give the actual details. It's just more powerful. I prioritize my duties. It's probably needs to be past tense there. And that's present tense. Using that tenacity to support all my goals properly. Once again, that's telling, not showing. Show, don't tell. Don't give us these conclusions. Actually show us. Let the reader get to their own conclusions. I was enrolled in the law program where I tackled the preamble of my legal education, which feels overly wordy. You don't need to say preamble, which piqued my interest in why I aspire to pursue and practice law. As the lead defense attorney at the 2019-2020 mock trial, I gained practical experience in assuming the role of an officer of the court. Um, I mean, this is better than everything else so far. I still don't love it. I don't love high school mock trial as a personal statement topic. High school anything is generally a bad topic, but it's better than talking about struggles. So, okay, sure. Although I was nervous, I performed exceptionally well during the first trial. Yeah, show, don't tell. Don't say about how you performed well. Talk about how you were received by like the judges. Um, it's just more powerful. Everyone, including the judge, praised my performance and noted my skill in being confident and able to think on the spot in situations I did not prepare for. Yeah, that's all fine. Um, generally, I don't like that this is high school. I prefer it to be a little bit more um, prestigious, but you know, that's fine. It's not, I don't know. It's, I, I don't love this personal statement so far, to be honest to this person. It's something where I would probably um, scrap a lot of this and kind of build up from the ground. It, it's tough because like, you know, it's tricky and you want to find a good thing. And like, it's not poorly written, which is one step, but like at Harvard, Yale, this is not helping you. At maybe schools where they're just checking to make sure you're not a psycho, which is maybe what lower rank schools are doing. Not a big deal, but yeah. Okay, we continue. Where were we? Um, one major aspect I learned in oral advocacy is perseverance. The fact that no matter how I feel during the trial, I must commit to accepting adversity as adversity ensures that I perform confidently. Once again, we're, sh we're telling, we're not showing. Show, don't tell. Additionally, I served as the president of the law club for two years, participated in moot court, and graduated summa cum laude throughout high school. Once again, this is all high school. Your high school doesn't even go on your resume in law school admission. So I would cut all this. These actions were stressful, and since then, I've dealt with intense pressure. I now thrive on any task that will elevate my performance under time attention. We have a lot of telling, not a lot of showing here, so I don't love this. Additionally, high school, not good. So I would cut basically everything so far. Um, and then this second paragraph is, or the second page that they have is a, um, well, it's like a lot of bullet points. So we'll kind of go through the bullet points, talk about what's good and what's bad. One bullet point says, in my undergrad years, I majored in philosophy and minor in law, explain why. You don't have to. You could, but probably wouldn't. They also say, outside of academics, I worked as a social media specialist as Next Seekers International. I don't know what that is, but that could be a good statement. It just depends on what it is. I'd have to actually see it to give my opinion. But yeah, talking about like some position you held and what you did can make a good statement. Um, they're saying that this was social media marketing and real estate. So like, yeah, maybe. I have no idea. Um, that feels like a better direction without seeing it. It's hard to say, but I would probably just lean into that. And the person did continue. They have a second kind of part of the statement that's written. So let's read that. Here they say one of the most prominent courses I took was when I was a student of Professor Redacted, who was the person to whom I had the privilege of being introduced to the legal world. I thought you said you were introduced through mock trial. Now I assume this is college. So I try to make sure your uh, timeline is continuous there. As I realized his exceptional scholarship, which I aspire to emulate with his permission, I decided to put together an anthology of his work as his publications are one from which an aspiring law student can significantly benefit. The book, Selected Law Review Articles, in which I am the editor, analyzes the application of the Eighth Amendment, discussing moral responsibility, legal justification, and Socratic reasoning. That's all really good. Talk about, um, like, you know, 
putting together that book, that's such an awesome thing where you took action about something you cared about. It's also law related. Your whole personal statement could just be about the process by which you made that book. I would do that if I were you. Um, they continue. I've now broken free from that dilemma to embrace the unknown. I don't know what the dilemma is, the dilemma of writing the book. I would make sure that the antecedent to the dilemma is more clear because we're not, it's not quite sure what we're referring to. For example, I'm now in the process of publishing my own written text. Um, I wouldn't talk about things you plan on doing unless you're publishing them. It does say one of these is being written in December, 2023. So if you're applying post that, you can just say you published it. It's more powerful than saying what you plan to do. Generally don't tell people about what you plan to do. When you do, it kind of gives you the same dopamine hit as actually doing something. And unfortunately that discourages you from actually doing things. So I'd be careful with that. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the remaining paragraphs are very conclusive saying what you like, you know, what you've learned. They say, I've dedicated myself to prioritizing, enhancing my self-improvement and accepting accountability for my growth. I now have a genuine vested interest in improving my life. And I've done so with the improvements in education for a decade. If I can overcome these challenges, I can apply the same standards of practicing law. It's all very conclusive. You're adding nothing there. You're all just like kind of talking. You're trying to convince the law school, but you're not adding facts. You don't want to look at the rhetoric. It really doesn't belong. It's more about the facts, about what you've done. That'll make you a good lawyer. Well, for this person, I would say cut everything pre-college and then just go deep on one story. It can be the uh, social media aspect. It can also be the uh, um, putting together a book, really just something where you took action and got something done. The way you do it, I mean, you can go in a lot of formats, but just be very fact-based, less so focused on other stuff. And yeah, cool, cool. Alrighty, well, um, that's all I have for today. I'm trying to keep it short just so that these are nice digestible listens, but that's basically the deal there. Uh, as always, if you have anything you want to get on the show agenda, whether it be a statement or a question, you can email ben at lsasimplified.com. Um, and yeah, if you want to reach me anywhere else, you can always find me at LSA Simplified either on my website or Instagram.